Well, I've kind of come to the conclusion that this is the perfect end for the last 12 months. Last March, we started the pandemic, and we thought, in a couple of months, this will be tough, but we'll be over it. And now, 12 months later, we're still in the pandemic, and we've had the worst freezing storm in my lifetime in Texas. And it seems as though every week there's something new. There's some new setback. There's some new thing that we have to face. And I don't know about you, but I'm getting tired. This week, we were one of the blessed ones. We had heat the whole time. Julie and I felt guilty. We were so blessed. We invited multiple people to come stay in our house. They all turned us down. Apparently, they would rather be cold than be subjected to my humor. But, but the, the fact is that even in spite of having to eat, you, you, just, you just kind of have gotten beaten down, haven't you? I mean, work is frustrating. Relationships are frustrating. Uh, going to the store is frustrating. Um, and you kind of step back and, and you after a while, you feel a little disoriented and you kind of wonder what the point is. And, and there's, a, there's a sense in which we easy fall, easily fall into a feeling of a lack of direction, a lack of, of what God is doing in it all. Um, today, I, I want us to look together at Luke chapter 7. Um, the theme of this series in Luke has been more like Jesus, the, the ways that we can see Jesus respond to life and how that could teach us. Obviously, we can't be God. We aren't the Messiah. We can't be many things that he is, but his character is the ultimate goal for all of us, that, that consistent life of fellowship with the Lord and with his perfect obedience to God. And chapter 7, I think, is in many ways a pivot point, and I'll show you that as we go through it. It's, it's a long passage. You'll have to be a little patient with me, but I, I think you'll be grateful after we've seen what the Lord has to say with it. So in verses 1 through 35, you see his ministry growing. Um, let me start in Luke 7, 1. When Jesus had finished saying all this in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Capernaum was one of his bases. It's where Peter and Andrew lived. Um, their house is still, the one that's traditionally theirs is still there. And there was a centurion servant whom his master valued highly was sick and about to die. The centurion, a Roman soldier, over a hundred people, heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him asking him to come and heal his servant. And when the Jews came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. Notice that it is the Jewish leaders who come to Jesus on behalf of the centurion, and they ask for his help, saying, he deserves your help because of all that he's done for us. So Jesus went with them, and he wasn't far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself. This is interesting. The centurion said, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. In spite of what the Jews said, he is aware of the fact he doesn't deserve Christ's presence. That's why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you, but say the word and, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I tell this one go and he goes and that one come and he comes and I say to my servant do this and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him and turned to the crowd following him and said, I tell you, I have not found such a great faith even in Israel. 
And then the man who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. This, this centurion is an amazing example in this passage of, of the person that Jesus is looking to. Because Jesus himself says, I've never seen faith like this in all of Israel. But I want you to notice something. How is his faith expressed? In submission to Jesus' authority. He himself said, you have authority and as one who has authority, I understand that all you have to do is say it and it will occur. I understand that by your words you can make this happen. Can I tell you that in my experience with sharing the gospel, the greatest hindrance that we have to come into Christ and quite frankly to trusting Christ as followers of his is that we struggle with placing ourselves under his authority. It, we intuitively know that, that if we're going to place our faith in him, that means that he has the right to tell us what we have to do to be saved. He has the right to declare that it's faith alone that can accomplish our salvation and that our works aren't good enough. We have to play by his rules when we submit ourselves to him in faith. And more often than not, our real struggle with God isn't that we don't have enough evidence. It's that we just don't like him being an authority so that Jesus hears the centurion and says this is the faith that we're looking for in Israel notice also that faith is not a proud faith it's a humble faith it 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 recognizes that because of the greatness of Christ the centurion knows he doesn't deserve anything from him this theme of humility will come through the passage that, that one of the things that stands in our way of responding to Christ oftentimes is, is our pride, not only in the sense that we don't want to submit to his authority, but in the sense that, that we just don't want to admit we need him. And the centurion is elevated in this passage as someone who grasps what it is to trust Christ. Now hear me, it is his faith alone but it is often our unwillingness to submit to his rules that keeps us from placing our faith in him. Then in verses 11 through 17, there's another episode. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. And as he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her and he said, don't cry. And then he went up and touched the coffin and those carrying it stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, get up. And the dead man sat up and began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. And this news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. In the previous story about the centurion's servant, the, the 
problem was the servant was about to die, but now the story heightens because we have an example of a young man, apparently, who is the only son of his mother, a widower. In other words, her only means of financial support, and he has already died. And Jesus' heart goes out to her situation and raises him from the dead which is a pretty big miracle, right? I mean, of, of miracles, that scores pretty high on the scale. On the, that kind of ruins the curve of miracles when you can give life to someone who is dead. And, and here, it, it's fascinating because so little is said of it, but it is simply a demonstration of Jesus' power over death. And his compassion for this woman who has such a great need. Verse 18, the passage begins to make sense of all of this. John's disciples told him about all these things. And calling two of them, John sent them to the Lord and said, Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? Now this is fascinating because in John chapter 1, very early in Jesus' ministry, it is John Jesus' cousin who says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So that he had known for some time that Jesus was apparently the Messiah. But yet at this point, John is beginning to have doubts. And, and we can only guess why that is. Maybe Jesus' ministry hasn't hit the popularity that John expected. Maybe John also thought that the Lord would bring military accomplishment. We don't know. But you see here John beginning to struggle with faith. And he sends two people to Jesus and says, are you the one? Verse 21, at that very time Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits. And he gave sight to many who were blind. Uh, so he just raised someone from the dead. And then you notice in the miracles that are listed there, they, they have increasing difficulty, diseases and sicknesses, but then the casting out of spirits and healing of blindness, which in the book of Isaiah is clearly one of the miracles of the Messiah. And Jesus replied to the messengers, go back and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear. And the dead are raised. And the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Jesus gives to these two messengers, to John the baptizer, that, that the facts of what he's doing and, and that list of miracles and that message of good news are consistent with what the Old Testament prophecies, especially the book of Isaiah, had, had promised that the Messiah would do. And in effect, Jesus is saying to John's followers, just go back and remind John that I'm doing all the Old Testament said the Messiah would do. And after John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out in the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. 
Those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces, not in the wilderness. And, and what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yeah, I'll tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. That's a quotation from Isaiah 40. I tell you, among those born of woman, there is no one greater than John. And yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Uh, Jesus takes that opportunity to say to his disciples, Jesus is that one, that messenger about whom it was prophesied that he would, he would introduce the Messiah to the world. And as such, he is one of the greatest figures of all time. But in the kingdom, the greatness of the kingdom will surpass anything else. Verse 29, this comes to a climax. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves but because they had not been baptized with John. Luke wants us to know that the Pharisees had already made a decision not to respond to the prophetic message that John had brought on behalf of the Father. And that was a message of repentance and a call to baptism, a call to turn back to submission to God and His will and seek His grace and mercy in their lives. Verse 31, Jesus says, To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other, We played the flute for you and you didn't dance, and we sang a dirge and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread or drinking wine, and you say he is a demon, has a demon. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is proved right by all our children. What's he saying? Those who have rejected Jesus had already decided to reject him because they, they, they rejected John for his asceticism, his, his bare lifestyle, his life of deprivation. They rejected Jesus because he enjoyed life too much. And Jesus is saying that, that it doesn't matter how the messenger comes. You've already decided to reject the message. And as such, he says, wisdom is revealed by those who follow. And th this is all applied in the next story. A story about another dinner party. The dinner parties are a major theme in Luke. Beginning in verse 36, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. But first of all, have you noticed how shocking it is that Jesus went to have dinner with a Pharisee? First of all, that they even invited him because it's clearly made known that they rejected his message. Uh, I believe that they brought him there to entrap him, to prove that he wasn't what, because we already know from the context, they've rejected the message. But Jesus still goes. Knowing that their hearts are close to his message and who he is, Jesus still goes. And part of what I want you to see in this passage is the, the characteristic of Christ that, that Luke chapter 7 portrays that you and I need is Jesus never forgot what he was here for. John had doubts. 
The people had doubts. The Pharisees questioned. Jesus' disciples will question. But, but Jesus is always directly on point of what he's there for. So when a Pharisee invites him to his house for dinner, I would have said, I'm not going to your house. You don't like me. It's, I, you're not someone I want to be with. But Jesus goes. Why? Because Jesus has come to proclaim the good news. Jesus is bringing the gospel of our Lord, and quite frankly, he wants the Pharisees to receive it as well. I think this shows that Jesus never quits trying to reach people with the message of the gospel, even the Pharisees. John chapter 3, we see Nicodemus, uh, uh, one of those religious leaders, one of the Pharisees who comes to Jesus. And Jesus so graciously accepts him and tells him the story of the gospel, explains it using words that we still post at football games, John 3, 16, and, and, and shows incredible grace to him as a Pharisee so that he'll hear the message and respond. And I... Can I tell you that I think some of us are no longer willing to risk ourselves to sit down with Pharisees. I, I, I fear that some of us have, have gotten so defensive and so fearful and, and, and frankly maybe so angry at the world around us that, that we've lost that heart for going and putting ourselves in the position of candidly, potentially being criticized and other things because they've rejected the message. Why would we risk ourselves? And yet Jesus continues to do it knowing full well that these are the people who will demand his death. So Jesus goes to the house and reclines at the table. When a family had a meal together, they would typically sit together, but at a banquet they would recline. You know that. They would rest themselves on one elbow and recline with their feet out away, partially because of their belief that the feet, having traveled in the world around them, would carry the dirt of the world and, and the uncleanness of the world, and they would recline for a long banquet, and he's in that position. And a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisees' out, and she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and she wiped them with her hair and kissed them and poured perfume on them. Uh, take a picture of this. Now, uh, some scholars believe this is different from the similar story that's in the other Gospels, that this is a unique story. It's hard to know. There is at least um, one event in all the Gospels or two different events described. But in this case, this woman walks up, and Luke doesn't tell her why she's a sinner. Many believe she's a prostitute. She may well have been an adulteress. We don't know. But the sense is that she is a person whom the Pharisees would say had failed morally, and as such, they would not want to be associated with her. And she comes in and, and looks into the house, into possibly this courtyard where Jesus is reclining. And according to the books I've read there, the doors might well have been open so that she would have had access. And she comes in and his feet are out from the table and she starts weeping. And the word used for weeping is like a rain shower. She is pouring tears. 
and she weeps so much that she cleans his feet with her tears and then she lets her hair down and wipes the tears off his feet with her hair and poured perfume on them. In the first century, for a woman to let her hair down in public was considered scandalous. Uh, the Talmud, which is an ancient Jewish writing, actually said that a man had a right to divorce his wife if she let her hair down in public. It was, it was viewed as something you just wouldn't do. And so she is in her humility and her brokenness, ignoring all convention and simply serving him in a way that would be shocking for us even today. Her eyes are pouring out tears, so much so that she can clean his feet, and then she uses her hair to wipe the muddy mess off of his feet which begs a question about love, verses 39 and following. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, which is what the Jews had said he might well be in the earlier story, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman this is. She's a sinner. The Pharisees see Jesus' willingness to be associated with this woman who is considered an outcast, proof that he is not what the crowds are claiming that he is. And Jesus said, Simon, the Pharisee, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Jesus then tells the parable, two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other a denarii was a soldier's day wage. It was not a lot of money. Um, tradition says that Cicero was paid 150,000 denarii a year in his high position. Office holders under Augustus Caesar were paid up to 10,000 denarii a year. But, but a poor soldier would be paid one denarii a year, or not much money. Fifty would be um, ten weeks worth of pay. But another owes 500, uh, obviously ten times as much. And Jesus says, uh, neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of one of them would love him more? Which, which debtor would feel a greater debt and therefore love more deeply. And Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. And Jesus said, you've judged correctly. And he turned to the woman and said to Simon, you see this woman? Well, obviously Simon did. He pointed her out. He said, I came into your house and you didn't give me water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss as you know, customary to kiss on the cheek. In the ancient Near East is a way of greeting, as Paul will say in the epistles. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. And therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. 
The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, very important verse, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Go in peace. Now, you don't have to have read the New Testament many times to understand that, that Jesus is preaching this to Simon with the hopes that Simon will hear the message as well. Because Simon somehow believes that he doesn't need as big a debt forgiven. Because obviously he's not lived a scandalous life. He's a Pharisee. He knows all the law. He's made a life of being good. And Jesus, by telling the story, is implying that the difference is that she's aware of just how much she's been forgiven. And that's why she loves so deeply. Uh, the, if you've read the New Testament much, you know that Jesus' opinion of the Pharisees is that they lead a lot of forgiveness as well because they have rejected the word of God. They have rejected the truth of Christ and therefore he will bring his greatest condemnations against them. The problem isn't that Simon has no sin. The problem is that Simon has no awareness of his sin. Simon believes he doesn't need Jesus. He that's why he can reject him. That, that's why Jesus' message is irrelevant to him because he, he, he's a good guy. He's a Pharisee. He's kept the law. He doesn't need it. And his main problem with Jesus is that Jesus would associate with such awful people as, as he's doing. And Jesus uses this opportunity to, to teach not only the woman because of her great repentance that brought great love through her great faith to Jesus, not only does Jesus use that to teach her about how God has honored that faith with salvation, but also to teach Simon that if he knew how great a debt he had, then he would respond in faith as well. But he doesn't feel a need to. He he thinks he's just fine. And, and as, as you read chapter 7 of Luke, you're, you just see how great the need we have for him is. That whether it's physical problems or spiritual problems, the, the results of human brokenness made, uh, makes us desperately in need of Jesus' grace. And... and whether it's the widow's son or the centurion's servant or the many whom Jesus responded to, they all come to Jesus and have their needs met by him. He is portrayed in this chapter as the solution for every human need because he is the one whom God sent, the one whom the prophet Isaiah promised and the one whom John would introduce. And, and you cannot read this passage without recognizing that Luke wants us to know that Jesus came for broken people like us. But the characteristic about Jesus that I want you to see is the clarity he had of why he was here. That, that focus that no matter whether it was John who was questioning him or the Pharisees and the religious leaders, no matter what the circumstances, he was always focused on the reality that he was sent by God to proclaim the good news to a people that had a problem with sin. And that meant that if 
One of the opposition invited him to his house that he came. That meant if someone who was alienated by their actions touched him, he responded in grace. That meant that no matter the circumstances, he was always about that one thing, to obey God by bringing the gospel to a broken people. That, that focus of purpose, that commitment to the message, that astounding love that he portrayed to people, no matter what their need was, is just overwhelming as you march through this passage. And even though people resist him and people question him, his own cousin John wonders, even though the circumstances keep changing, he keeps doing what he's here to do. And that is to tell people the message that if they'll trust it, it will bring salvation. That faith alone, through grace alone, by Jesus' death alone is the means by which people can uh, overcome the results of sin in their lives and have relationship with God. And it just struck me this week as, as, as kind of the weird delirium of this last 12 months and especially this week as, as we were all locked in our homes and trying to keep water moving and trying to keep heat moving and worrying about our neighbors and, and all the nonsense. And, and it's kind of been a disorienting 12 months. And you, you kind of, it's just so easy to forget what we're here for and, and what we're called to do. And you look at the life of Jesus and he never forgot that, that he came to solve the problem of sin in a broken world. He came to relieve people of the consequences of the hurt through his miraculous power, but ultimately by telling them the message that if they put their faith in it, it would bring salvation. And, and we, as his followers... Dare not forget that. We're not in church for our comfort. We don't read his word to get new facts and to be interested. We don't have fellowship together just to avoid loneliness. That all that we do as followers of Christ ultimately goes in the direction of what he gave us as our job to do with the Great Commission to go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them to all deserve all that he commanded, baptizing them, that, that we're here to proclaim the message about Jesus. And then no matter what comes along, that has to be what we're focused on. So I'd ask you, what... How do you view your week, your day, your life? Do, you, do we have that sense of purpose to represent Christ and tell others about his message? Do we as a church understand that apart from that, we've lost our greatest reason for being here, that, that we have been commissioned by the God of the universe to take a message that, that meets the yearning of human souls because of the death brought on by sin. 
And do we have that laser-like focus in all that we do? Jesus did. Jesus did. He, he continued to respond to the world around him with his face going in the same direction. Ultimately, his death on the cross whereby we could have salvation and a life through his resurrection. Please pray with me. Father, we confess that life can get in the way and, and we get going in so many different directions that we almost seem purposeless and directionless and broken. Father, we confess that we can become defensive and fearful and respond to the world around us out of fear rather than with a sense of your gospel. But your son, who gave up everything to come here, never lost that sense of why he was here. And he kept doing your work, kept proclaiming your message, kept healing broken hearts, kept leading people to trust in you. Father, give us that same focus. In his name we pray. Amen.